Okay, good morning, everybody. It's good to see everybody, and um, <clears throat> it is good to um, be here together in the midst of an overcast day, but we're bright and happy inside, right? <clears throat> so it is um, good. We are the light of the world, so if it's dark outside, good news, we get good practice, right? To light up what's going on around us, corny but true. So with that in mind, <laughs> I think we are going to um, continue to worship God right now with our word and our message, and we are going to start um, by saying this. We are um, in a time of uh, transition, as we are annually, um, where our students are getting ready to um, take off uh, for the summer. They're in exam mode. Any any students in exam mode right now? Okay. Yeah, finals. No, it's like, whoa. So with that, I know you're in the battle, you're in the mix, you know, but bless you as you uh, are in that process. And so please be praying for the students as well as they're um, in the midst of that. How many of you remember exam time? Yeah, I mean, in uh, your university years and how many you're glad you're finished with that. Uh, yes. Okay. The worship is beginning to rise now. And so like we want to praise God, you know what I mean, for all that he's done and given us opportunity to do. But um, we're excited about our students getting to serve God um, wherever they might go over the course of this summer as well. We thank God for those who are staying here, going to be continuing to labor for the kingdom in Chicago. But we want to encourage our students um, who are going to different locations um, to also continue in the work of God wherever you find yourself, right? If you have a home church, get involved. If you're in a um, church in a city where you might be doing an internship, serve the Lord there. Don't allow this to be a, a summer where you just go lax and lackadaisical and like let the things of God be secondary to you, but continue in the fervor of God and go into a greater depth and a greater height with the Lord Jesus. Amen to that? Okay, so with that in mind, we are going to um, also say that we are, as a church here in this city, for those of us who are staying behind, we are going into outreach mode because it's going to get warm. Yes, we're going to get warm. When it's warm outside, we are outside too. And we are actually preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ intentionally believing that Jesus wants to save lives. Jesus wants to save souls. And so we are going to do that um, this summer. And one of the exciting things that we have happening is that May 15th, everybody say May 15th. We actually have a woman who's been working with the Darcy J Foundation, and we have a sports camp outreach that's going to take place right at DePaul University this summer. Isn't that exciting? So we're going to actually have a sports camp and outreach, and it's going to be a fun camp and community day for the families of the city. And the woman who's helping to put it together is going to come May 15th to talk about how we as Second City Church can be the volunteers in helping to put that together. So please, if you are in the city May 15th, make sure you are here. Um, that morning because we're going to get information about that. Additionally, we're going to be um, passing out packets because the goal of this is, is to raise funds so that when August comes around in the next school year, there are going to be kids and families who are in need of school supplies, backpacks, haircuts. Come on now. And it's, it's like with that, we're going to um, be trying to provide for the needs of the community in the city. And these packets will help us go to local businesses, seeing them get tax um, deductible contributions and be a part of Jesus' hands and feet in blessing the city for Jesus' name. Amen to that? Okay, so May 15th. May 15th is coming, and I hope you're here. So we are going to talk to you more about that, but we are going to jump into our series today. Um, 
and uh, just so you know, uh, don't leave after I finish preaching because we are going to also have communion today, all right? We celebrate the sacrament. I'm focusing on the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ every month to say, Jesus, you are the center of all of our faith. You're the center of all that we do, think, and believe. And so let's participate that as we go into worship um, after the message today. So last week we uh, finished our... um, series we were doing, which it was called Chicago Fire, the Spirit-Filled Church in the City. And we pick that up each year after Easter to talk about what the church should look like in the cities in which we live after the resurrection of Jesus, after the Holy Spirit's been poured out. What are we to be and what are we to do as a church in the city? Today, we're going to um, transition to um, a, a message called Redemption, okay? It's a series that we're doing in terms of redemption. And how many people know that is a central theme of the whole Bible is redemption and a whole theme of the gospel is the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? How he takes lives that were enslaved to sin, enslaved to all types of debauchery, enslaved to all types of the repercussions of sin, and he redeems them through his saving work on the cross. And so redemption is actually, we're going to go not just in the New Testament, but we're going to go to the Old Testament, and we're going to find out how that theme was even embedded and intrinsic to some of the stories that were invested in the Old Testament and find out how they all pointed to Jesus how they all were a part of his ongoing story and how they're a part of the encouragement that we should receive that no matter where we are in our lives right now, God's got a redeeming plan for us today, okay? And so what we're going to do is we're going to learn to read our Bibles and learn to read it in such a way that all of Scripture applies to today. All of Scripture has value in teaching us the lessons of how to relate with um, to God and live through Jesus in the world today. And how many people can say amen to that? I want to learn how all of the Bible has lessons for me to learn in how to live for Jesus today. So let's pray, and then we're going to jump into it. Redemption. Today is called the fight for your birthright, okay? Redemption, the fight for your birthright. Father, we thank you so much for the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that Jesus, even as we're getting ready to celebrate you through the sacrament of communion today, that God, it is all about your perfect, sinless life. It's all about your sacrifice. It's all about your death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. And though we blew it in our lives in various ways and capacities, God, you came to redeem us through your son. You came to redeem us through his precious blood. And it applies to wherever we find ourselves today. So we're asking that we receive encouragement from your word. Our eyes would be open. You'd give us revelation and that you would help us to live for you wholeheartedly in Jesus name. And everybody said, amen. Okay. So let's get started. So, so much of our lives, so much of our lives are a struggle for satisfaction, trying to find out who we are and what our place is in this world. How many people would agree with that? People are just looking for a little bit of satisfaction. We pursue careers, relationships, positions, and wealth, hoping to finally become the man or woman we think that we should be. Along the way, we make decisions that have long-term consequences in shaping both our temporal and eternal destiny. Esau and Jacob, who we're going to be reading about in a moment, are actually typifying this and examples of this as we break into their story. And they were no different. But what we'll see in the account of these two brothers is that they handled their birthright, which we're going to discuss and talk about and explain, in such a way that gives examples for us of how we should respond to that urge for satisfaction in today's times. So if you're taking notes today, this is how we're going to break down the message. It's going to be the things that drive us. Number two, the truth, the truth about your birthright. Number three, 
Number three, despising your birthright. And then finally, number four, Jesus and your birthright. How does Jesus come to deal with the birthright that he's given us? Okay, so if you have a Bible today, turn to Genesis chapter 25, starting in verses 19, and we're going to go through verse 28. Verses 19 through 28. To set the backdrop, backdrop of this, the Bible is an ongoing story, right? It's a continual um, um, story of God's creation. It's a continual story of his interaction with humanity. It's a continued interaction that has to do with his salvation that he was bringing through Jesus Christ, his son. It started with Adam and Eve, the perfect, um, <clears throat> the perfect opportunity that they had in the Garden of Eden, the fall that they had, and God's immediate response to bring salvation, right? His immediate response to actually bring correction to the sin that Adam and Eve found themselves in. We see that over the course of time, humanity, because of the sin that was inherent in their heart, they can continued to go astray. And the world as we know it today is not as necessarily God designed it, but it's a product of the fallenness of humanity. And what we see is that God comes to, through his church and through his people, through the gospel, redeem it over and over again through Jesus' life, example, death, miracle, and resurrection. And so what we see is that this was part of the story even in the Old Testament. He said, I'm going to start over with the Jewish people. I'm going to start over with a man named Abraham. And out of a pagan nation, I'm going to take this man Abraham and his family, and I'm going to have them give themselves wholeheartedly to me and choose to follow my ways. And as I teach them my ways of faith, then I'm going to start blessing him and then through his life be a blessing to all of the nations of the earth. We know that Abraham was the physical descendant of Jesus himself. And Abraham, through that promise, said, not only am I going to give you Jesus in the way off time, but I'm going to start even with the blessing of your own children. Abraham, for 75 years, you and your wife have had no children, but I'm going to give you children. And you're going to have a son whose name is I, one of them, whose name is going to be Isaac. And that's going to be a child of promise. And that Isaac is also going to have a son. And he's going to have two sons, twins, in fact. And I, I don't see Luda and David here today, but they just had twins. Isn't that exciting, right? It's like everybody loved David and Luda. Pray for them, okay? Because they have a one-year-old and then now twins. So they have three boys, that, like to mention itself, under one years old, okay? So pray for them. But Esau and Jacob, back to the point, were actually, you know, twins who were continuing the purposes of God. And we see them picking up in this story here. So we see God's trying to bring his redemption deeming work through a family line, and this is the account. Verse 19, this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. So if any of you are waiting on some love, that's okay. Listen, in the Old Testament, 40 was a new 20. Woo! Okay, so it was sort of like that. Started there, right? He said, he said, Padanaram, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The babies, however, from her womb, jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. 
When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. That was like one of my kids coming out. I was like, what's this, a chia pet? Anyway, but the point is, it's like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out his, <clears throat> with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So they had to wait 20 years in, from the time of their marriage to the time of them having kids. And in that culture, that was a long time, right? They were like, listen, part of my inheritance, part of my blessing comes through the natural physical line that I have. And they had to wait 20 years for it. But God heard them, answered them after 20 years, and he had a son. He said, after this... <clears throat> The brothers came out and the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. So you can imagine him being hairy, big and brawny, right? While Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. And if it was in our time, play video games. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebecca loved Jacob. Now, what do we see here? What do we see here? First of all, we see a setup in a family that is much like the setups that we have in our family lines today, right? It's sort of like you have kids that come out and no matter how they come from the same family line, same parents, same environment, same household, anybody ever amazed to see how different unlike brothers and sisters can be? personality-wise, you know what I mean? Interest-wise, strength-wise, you know what I mean? And then based on that, whether they like it or not, you know what I mean? A lot of us come from homes. I'm not saying this is true in my home. In my home, I love all my kids the same. But in many of our homes, you know what I mean? You gravitate towards one parent or another, right? It's sort of like, well, I get mom gets me better or dad just gets me better. Maybe your dad was an athlete. So if you find yourself to be an athlete, then he's like, yeah, this is my son, you know what I mean? And then like the, um, the son who's more like an accountant, you know, I mean, he's like, listen, you know, if dad's an accountant, he's like, you know, listen, you're going to follow in my line and you're going to take over the family business. And there's a natural relationship that occurs based on the way that God's designed us, right? Anybody find that to be true? But what happens is, is that that can shape us in ways that we're not even aware of. I know that there's a good book out like by Kevin Lehman, I believe it is, called The Birth Order Book, right? And in The Birth Order Book, it talks about how even your order in your family line affects and shapes your personality in ways that you don't realize. How many of you are firstborns in here? Okay, yeah, okay. How many of you firstborns would describe yourself as type A? Okay, right. Okay, because there's something in you, right, where all the hopes and dreams of the family is the first sign of my strength in my daughter or son. And then you're like, okay, I got to achieve, I got to achieve, I got to achieve. And how many of you are middle children in here? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And how many of you realize that oftentimes you're like peacemakers? Anybody agree that you're like a peacemaker and you might be a little bit more chill than your other siblings? Okay. And how many of you are the babies of the family? <laughs> okay. And the babies of the family, come on, don't just be honest. We're in church. How many of you would admit that you're spoiled? Nah, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's from a firstborn, all right? And so all of a sudden, we see that it shapes us in ways that we don't even realize, right? And in the same way, how we relate with our mom and dad shapes us in ways that we don't even realize. And the question is, is as we read this as an example and see the things that drive us, this is what we're talking about. The question is, what have you been known for growing up? 
What have you been known for? Meaning in Esau's case, he was known as a skillful hunter, right? He was a man of the field. His dad was like, man, I like to eat. And I, when I like to eat, I like to eat meat, right? Nothing, none of this vegan, vegetarian stuff. Bless you if you're that. But it's like, listen, he's like, I want some game, you know? And he said like, and with... Um, <clears throat> If you think about, um, if you think about Jacob, he was like, Dad, when Esau brings it home, I'm gonna spice it right. You know what I mean? I'm gonna put it together for you. But it's like all of a sudden you see that it drove them in certain ways. The question is, what were you esteemed for, and what do you wish you had been esteemed for? What were you esteemed for, and what do you wish you had been esteemed for? These desires drive us far more than we realize. How many people would admit to that? In your household, the approval that you did or did not receive drives us subconsciously to do things that we should do sometimes and sometimes things that we should not. Now, Jacob means the one who grasps the heel. It was a colloquialism to mean deceiver, right? Even from his womb, he was known as one who would be a trickster, a deceiver. This was the way that Jacob would be identified from his youth, while Esau and his natural talents brought him favor with his father. He was his father's favorite son, while Rebekah bonded with Jacob in the tent. So he was like a mama's boy, right? And we have any mama's boys in here? Hey, listen, I'm a mama's boy. No, don't, don't be shy. I love my mama. Anybody love their mama in here? Listen, listen, Mother's Day is next week. We all better love our mamas, right? Come on, mothers, all right? So I love my mamas, and I would have been like Jacob too, right? Now, these affiliations were no doubt felt by each member of the family and drove what Esau and Jacob were willing to do to find peace and satisfaction. Just like the things, the environments in which we grew up drive us subconsciously to find different means of peace and satisfaction. But what we've got to get to in God is what St. Augustine said in Confessions. Has anybody read Confessions before? Okay, Confessions. I highly recommend Augustine's Confessions, St. Augustine's Confessions to you. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And how many people can say amen to that? It doesn't matter how you started or what's driving you now. He's saying, ultimately, God wants you to find your rest in him. Now, what we're doing is ultimately subconsciously striving for something called our birthright. Our birthright. And in ancient Near Eastern culture, the firstborn received the division of the material possessions divided by the number of sons plus an additional share, okay? So if, you, if I had, like in my family, I had four children, right? Obviously, girls and guys continue to um, like count in the uh, inheritance now. And so what we see is that I'd have four children, but the firstborn mercy would get actually an extra share, which was actually called the double portion, right? The double portion. And then thus the firstborn received the double portion of the inheritance. And this is what Isaac's favorite son, Esau, was in line to receive. Now, what is the truth about your birthright? Whenever we find ourselves being driven by things that have basically been formed by our environment and our culture around us, what we've got to understand is two things. First of all, your birthright from God is different than your birthright from a natural line, okay? Your birthright from God is different from your birthright from a natural line. You might come from a home where materially there's nothing being stored up for you. There's nothing to look forward to. Everything that you're going to get in this life is going to be by the work of your hands and as God blesses it. But in God, it's different. Your birthright from God, let me tell you, has to do with eternal, not just temporary reward. Isn't that good news? When you work, what you see is that your reward that you get for your work is basically what your temporal reward is. If a man won't work, the Bible says he or she will not, okay, eat. 
The Bible says if you won't work, you won't eat. So everybody needs to be diligent to work so that they can eat, right? But at the same time, God's saying, I've got an eternal reward that is also based on the work of your hands. I don't save you because of what you do, but you better believe I reward you according to what you've done. Now, in the temporal, I reward you with a paycheck, right? That's what God says. doesn't matter how skilled you are. Your job is a product of God's favor on your life. Everybody understand that? Meaning, I'm sure, Ed, all of us have seen layoffs, all of us have seen downsizing, all of us have seen companies even go out of business, and you might have been the lone survivor. And let me tell you why. It's because God has had favor on your life. Or if you've been part of some downsizing and you've been able to go to another job, let me tell you, it is God opening those doors, not just your ingenuity or your talents, right? But in the same way, what you've got to understand is that that is not the only reward that God has for you. So much and of the time and so often we're only focused on the temporal things thinking that all God has for me is what I can see or what I can handle or what I can touch in the right here and the right now but the message of the gospel is is that there's an eternal kingdom there's an eternal reward and your life needs to be invested not just in temporary things but in eternal things the birthright that God has for you is trying to turn your eyes to eternal things even as you're responsible for the temporal things that are your responsibility each and every day. What God's saying is that you are an eternal being. Your birthright can be something temporary but also eternal. In a culture obsessed with the reward of immediate gratification, we need to focus on things that are eternal and unseen. Now, I'm going to point this out through the scripture very quickly because this is the big deal in our culture. What drives us is to get a hold of the things that we can immediately get satisfaction from, right? Why is social media so big today? Because it provides immediate gratification, does it not? It provides immediate gratification, of, even if it's false, of relationship, it get, provides immediate gratification of even esteem and reward, right? How many people are, come, come, come on now, are honest, and when you post something on Instagram or Facebook, you're checking about three or four times a day to see how many likes you got, <laughs> right? Immediate gratification is what you're looking for, right? And it's a means to that. It's a means of filling our soul in that area. And so much of what we're looking for is just on the here and now. And God's like, I'm trying to lift your eyes to the hills. Your inheritance is eternal. Eventually, all of this is going to change. All of this is going to disappear. He said, heaven and earth will disappear, will be burned up, but God and his word are going to remain. And so if I'm going to invest in something, I'm going to invest in the things that last, the things that remain, because this is where my inheritance is. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul's talking to the church, and he says it this way, verse 16 through 18. He says, in the midst of all that drives you, there are trials and there are obstacles that come your way. But this is how he says we're going to respond to them. He says, we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. Why? Because though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And have you ever been in pursuit of something in the temporal and found yourself wasting away? Wasting away trying to go after a career. Wasting away trying to go after riches. Wasting away trying to go after a relationship that just always seems a little bit out of your reach, right? 
A little bit more. How, well, when am I satisfied? Well, when I get a little bit more and I find myself wasting away. And God's saying, no, 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 turn yourself to things and invest yourself in things that last. Why? For these light and um, momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When we actually see ourselves as not just being invested in temporary things, but in eternal things. For the things that are seen are transient. Transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And the question is, is where does the lion's share of your energy, your heart devotion, your time, and your efforts go towards? What does it go towards? Does it go towards transient things or things that are eternal? Transient things or things that are eternal? What is a birthright? Your birthright speaks of an inheritance that your parents have prepared for you. And the natural can consist of property, possessions, and titles. In the spirit, it is that and far more. You begin to know your birthright through the natural gifts and talents God has given you. Like Esau, these aptitudes lead to natural interests and opportunities. Esau started well in the natural, becoming a great hunter and man of the field. And the question is, okay, if you have an inheritance that's from God, obviously he cares about both, the transient and the eternal, but wants you to focus on the eternal. He's saying, how have you already excelled in the endowments that God has given you? Just like Esau, you begin to see the inheritance that he wants to give you, starting with the natural talents, right? So what has he naturally given you that's part of the inheritance, right? People always, like when they're being filmed on TV, they're like, I just like, even if they're not serving God, I like to thank God. God, you know, I mean, for these gifts he's given me. I'd like to thank God for these, like, talents he's given me right at music awards. It's like, you know, I'd like to thank God. And then they start singing about something that's not of God, you know, but they thank God for the gifts anyway, you know. And he says this, how have you already been endowed with gifts that God's given you? Esau, Esau was endowed with gifts, but this is where he fell short, okay? This is where he fell short, and this is where we're encouraging you not to fall short, Okay. Esau, however, took his birthright for granted by never considering it <clears throat> as a part of God's redemptive purposes or connecting his inheritance to God. Because he thought so little of it, he was willing to sell it at a moment's notice to satisfy a very real but passing carnal desire, which we're about to read about. Jacob, on the other hand, was content in the home and would have had time to consider and think through the significance of his birthright so that he was willing to position himself to attain it. He would, however, go about obtaining it the wrong way, and because of his work of the flesh, would pay dearly for it many years after with anxiety, strife, and reciprocal manipulation. If you're familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau, you see that he eventually, what we're about to read, stole his brother's birthright, who didn't consider it or esteem it, and then he ultimately tricked him into it and then would be tricked often himself in his life down the road to come. We'll read about that in the coming weeks, okay? If you're willing to deceive, backstab, and steal to get ahead, it'll eventually come back to you, as Jacob discovered with Laban, who we'll read about later. However, if you sow good, it will also be returned to your doorstep. Here's the point. You don't need to be deceived, okay? Whenever you see the birthright that God has for you, the talents and the opportunities God's giving you initially, you need to immediately find out what is God's redemptive purpose in it, right? 
what is God's redemptive purpose with the inheritance that he's given me? If he's given me a talent, how does he want to use it for his glory? If he's given me an opportunity in the workplace, how does he want it to use it to shape like the world around me for his kingdom? How does he want to use this to put the name of Jesus on display and actually see his fame exalted through the opportunities that he's given me? That's what it means to actually use his inheritance and actually connect it to his eternal purposes. It's not just this is for me and just to meet my needs. It's actually what does God want to do with it to glorify his son and his name. The second thing about your birthright, though, is that <coughs> your birthright needs to be protected. Your birthright needs to be protected. You don't need to be deceived. Both sets of struggles when you come out of either a home like um, Jacob and Esau or one like your own, it can actually be a trap for you. Those like who, like Esau, seem to have the most things in life go their way are tempted not to think about the eternal because they're consumed with life's temporary pleasures. Okay? I'm going to repeat that. Those who, like Esau, seem to have most things in life go their way are tempted not to think about the eternal because they're consumed with life's temporary pleasures. Why was Esau, what we're about to see, so quick to allow his birthright to be stolen? Because he had most things going his way in the temporary, right? So, for instance, I came up in a home where we didn't have much struggle. And so, for me, there wasn't a lot of thinking about the divine, right? There wasn't a lot of thinking about it. A lot of times people think when you hear the gospel that somebody's responding to the gospel just because they're down on their luck. How many people have heard that before? Sort of like people reach rock bottom, they have no leg to stand on, and they use the gospel as a crutch, right? That was not my experience. Matter of fact, I had a lot going for me. I was in pre-med. You know what I mean? I was going um, to school to be a doctor like my father, and then all of a sudden Jesus had to come and in essence, put me on my face and actually say, this is who I am. And by the fact of who I am, I'm the Lord of all heaven and earth. You need to respond to me. But prior to that, I wasn't thinking about the things of God. I wasn't thinking about how the things that he had invested me were to be used for his glory because things were going my way. That was a trap for me, just like Esau. In the same way, on the other hand, Jacob had, um, could have a trap too because you might be on the other side where you feel like all of life has been a struggle. All of life has been an uphill climb. And I'm telling you that that can be just as much a trap as well because what can happen is if you're only thinking about clawing your way up opportunity by opportunity, then you have no time to think about the divine and the inheritance that God wants to give you. You understand the difference? Sometimes people who have everything handed to them, don't think about their inheritance in God because they're like, oh, it's all about the pleasures that are afforded to me. But those who don't have everything handed to them don't think about God in the same way because they don't have, in their minds, time to do so. But my exhortation to you is you don't have time not to. You don't have the openness or the willingness or the, the space in God not to think about these things because God's saying ultimately it's about his eternal purposes. Your divine inheritance needs to be protected. Like Jacob, you'll be grasping, striving, clamoring for security, acceptance, and approval all of your life if you're not satisfied in the inheritance of your heavenly father. 
And what that means is that you'll always be looking for something that that will satisfy you outside of God. You'll always say, if I just reach this position, if I just have this um, um, level of income, if I just have this relationship, that's what will satisfy me. But God's saying, no, it's in me that you are satisfied. Like Esau, you'll be willing to sell your inheritance for moments of carnal gratification if you're not focused on the eternal judgments and the rewards of God. This is when you despise your birthright. You despise your birthright when you trade eternal pursuits for the temporary pursuits of the world. Genesis 25, please turn there, 29 through 34. It says, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, all right, you're hungry. You have a need. And, and I'd just like to point out that just as much as we're talking about redemption as a continual theme in the Bible, many people recognize as we read more and more that famine and hunger is often a theme in the Scripture. Anybody see that over and over again? It's sort of like God's trying to get a point across. He's like, there will be times of hunger. There will be times of famine. There will be times when you don't feel like you have your needs met. But how are you going to respond in those moments? It's important that you respond in the right way unto him. He says, first in that moment, this is what Jacob says, first sell me your birthright. He said, look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Esau despised his birthright. Okay, that's fine. Esau despised his birthright. What does that mean for me? Okay, Esau despised his birthright. How do I despise my birthright? I can't tell you how often, I'm just giving you examples now, I've talked to people who've had legitimate, practical needs. Practical needs. God designed needs that they wanted to be met. Whether it uh, it had been physical, whether it had been relational, whether it had been, you know, things that had to do with their purpose or calling. And what happened is over the course of time they got antsy, and unwilling to be long-suffering anymore. And so what they began to do is they began to take into their own hands that which God was trying to do by his hand, and they worked in their arm of the flesh that which God was trying to give them by the Spirit. As an example, people who had been waiting for a long time for some sort of relationship in their life, they say, you know what, if I can't find a man or a woman in the church then I'm going to look outside of the church for relationship, right? Because obviously people don't see this glory, you know? And so they're like, I'm willing to sell my birthright and what God has for me for a momentary pleasure, right? Or some people, even in the midst of God giving them a relationship, say, you know, I know that God says he stores up, he withholds no good thing from those who what, whose walk is blameless, but I'm in this relationship, and, you know, baby, they're looking good tonight, and I know that I've got physical needs that need to be met, and so all of a sudden, they, re- uh, they replace 
the confidence that they could one day have in a marriage relationship, just the purity of relating intimately and sexually with their partner and the guilt that would um, follow if they cross that line for momentary pleasures in the moment. You understand what I'm saying? It's like I'm hungry in the moment and I'm willing to trade out the purity of God for my immediate physical need. This is what Esau did. Or in a career, you begin to actually represent or go after things that don't look like God, right? Just to make some money because you're determined to get ahead. When God's like, I will provide for you if you do it my way. Don't go in your own strength and begin to try to obtain your birthright by dishonoring me. He said, don't despise your birthright because ultimately, even if you try to get it back with tears, you won't. He said, do it my way and I'll provide for you. I hope this is making sense to you. God's saying, I will provide if you do it my way. How can you despise your birthright? You can despise and trade your eternal birthright by overindulging in temporal things. God has given us all things for our enjoyment, but if your sole goal is to consume as much pleasure in this life as possible, if work is simply a means to finance weekend excursions and expeditions unattached to worship and the building of the kingdom of God, then you'll never have your heart and mind set on the eternal where God the Father has prepared his inheritance for you. That is reality for much of Chicago today, is it not? It's like it's all about the weekend experience. It's all about what we can do to satisfy our needs and our goals. It says, don't let the concept, this is actually a conversation, thank you, Billy, this is actually a conf- um, conversation that we were having earlier in the week, you know, where we're talking about the uh, work-life balance, right? People understand the concept of the work-life balance today, and so much so that, you know, back in the day, people would overwork themselves that they would actually have no life, Right? And so now what happens is that people have swung the pendulum to the other side. They've started to say, well, I'm going to work hard, so basically it's all about me whenever I'm not clocking in the hours. And they don't give themselves to the eternal because they've said, I've put in my time, and therefore I don't deserve to have anything except what's going my way in the rest of the time. Does that make sense? They don't give themselves to the eternal things because they're trying to preserve this idea of the work-life balance. But the truth is, is God never talked about that. He said, your life is meant for eternal things from beginning to end. So when you're at the, in the workplace, that's great. It's unto God and it's unto the eternal. When you're outside of the workplace, that's great. It's unto God and it's unto the eternal. Don't let the concept of the work-life balance tip the scales so that you become ineffective and unproductive for the kingdom of God. That's what can happen. The devil wants to steal your birthright, but Jesus wants to restore it. So what does it look like when Jesus actually restores a birthright? when we don't live just for the temporal things, but we live for the things that God himself has prepared for us in him. Jesus comes to redeem your birthright, buying it back from the cross, what you once sold in your sin. Now, let me say this. This is actually the scripture. If you would, turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 14. Trying to open up the scripture in such a way where you can see it applied to your everyday life. Okay? See it apply. Things that are conceptual and things that you might read over and glaze over and say, oh, well, that was good. That was flowery. That was spiritual, but it doesn't have real application. He's trying to provide application to it in your everyday life by the Holy Spirit. Let me say this first about Jesus and him redeeming your birthright. Jesus is the ultimate. Just close your eyes for a minute, please. 
Some of you already have your eyes closed. That's fine. <laughs> okay. Close your eyes. Jesus. Jesus. Listen to this. Talking about Jacob and Esau as an example. It all points to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate firstborn, son of preeminence amongst all humanity. Because of his sinless life, no title or authority can ever be stolen or taken from him. He is the sole and rightful heir to his heavenly Father's throne, yet because he is benevolent and good, he voluntarily shares the inheritance with us. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, you have the opportunity to become a co-heir with Christ in terms of not just temporary things, but eternal things. In this, there is no more striving or fear, but peace, because he makes your lot secure. What are we called to do? Repent of sin put our trust in Jesus' redemptive work, and allow him to restore every gift, relationship, and dream within the context of his inheritance for you, the birthright contextualized in his gospel purposes for the world. What that means is that Jesus, because he's the firstborn and it all belongs to him, he says, you don't have to strive anymore. If you belong to him, you have an inheritance in him. And that means your security, your identity, your value, and your worth is not dependent on anything that you do, but it's dependent on Him. And therefore, you don't have to measure up to someone else's standards. You have to simply obey what He tells you to do and believe what He tells you to believe. The Bible says very clearly that the work of God is this, that you believe in the name of His only Son, Jesus, who He sent. And it gives peace to your soul because there's no more things that drive me because my inheritance comes from him. It's not just what I work for. It's not just what my family can give me. It's from him. Open your eyes, please, and let's read this in the scripture together. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 says this. I'm sorry, verse 7 says this. It says, in him, in Jesus. Can we actually read this together out loud because it's on the screen? It says, in him, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now that's a mouthful. That's a mouthful, but what does it mean? That's a mouthful, but what does it mean? It means that everything that is going to provide satisfaction in life comes in and through Him. Everything else is going to be a striving, a disappointment, and an exhaustion. 
Because ultimately you'll be working in the arm of the flesh and be willing to sell your birthright for momentary pleasures that will not last. Only the things that Jesus provides are the things that last. If you want a relationship, a marriage one day, that will last. Submit it to the person of Christ. If you want a career that actually has value beyond the paycheck that you get, submit it to the person of Christ. If you want your time to be worthwhile and you end up your days going to the bed and going to your pillow saying, at the end of the day, it is finished. Not just because you got a project done, but because you know the kingdom of God was advanced through your efforts. Submit it all to Christ. He's saying, I'm showing you what I'm about through my sinless life, my miracles, my death, my resurrection from the dead. And I've got an inheritance that comes and flows through that, not outside of it, through it. And if we don't understand that, we'll despise our birthright, just giving ourselves to the flow of culture, the temporary things, willing to trade our birthright for anything that might satisfy us in the moment. My question is, what are you living for today? Are you living simply for that which will give you pleasure in the moment but really has no eternal value? Or have you given yourself wholly to Christ and given yourself to investing in things that are eternal, things that are going to last and even provide a reward long after this physical body decays? You are an eternal being. Everybody hear that? You are an eternal being, and we have an eternal destination that will either be with him, ruling and reigning with him, or actually reaping the, the judgments of our life outside of him. Don't waste your life. I like John Piper's book. <laughs> Anybody like John Piper? Okay, well, maybe not. All right, I do. <laughs> okay. He has a book that's very plain, said don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Connected to God and the inheritance of the eternal things. And this is where I'll end. This is what Psalm, the psalmist King David wrote in Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6. He said this. He said, the Lord, the Lord is my chosen, meaning you've got to choose him. You don't fall into your life, you've got to choose him. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You've got to choose him, right? Remember coming from a family that was more than just one person. If you had that experience, remember going to the dinner table and like sort of fighting for your portion? Anybody remember that? Happens in my house all the time. It's like, wait, listen, nobody's going to starve here. <laughs> okay? The Lord is my chosen portion and cup. He said, you hold my lot. Or in the NIV, he said, you've made my lot secure. You've made my lot secure. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. He said, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So the question today, as we end, is, What's your birthright? Do you have a picture of it in your mind? Not just your momentary, but your eternal birthright. Are you protecting it? Or are you despising it? Are you investing in it? Or are you allowing other things to come and steal it from you? God wants to turn your eyes to the eternal and has an eternal reward for you. Amen? All right, let's worship.